Hi, I'm Pierce, and I'm here to tell you that Dracula sucks. In the next few episodes, we're going to look at the Dracula movies made by the Spanish director Jesus Franco. The first of these was a failed attempt to film Bram Stoker's novel faithfully, while the subsequent films are more in line with the kind of higher weirdness that Franco is better known for. If you've never heard of Jess Franco, you're normal. To call this movie an acquired taste is an understatement. Most people will never acquire the taste. In fact, the most common response to your first Jess Franco film is to never want to see another one. He occasionally tried his luck with making a reasonably normal genre film, especially in the 1960s and in the 1980s, but the vast majority of his output is a unique blend of dark voyeuristic eroticism with a surreal improvisational style and a zonked-out sense of humour that emerges at the most inappropriate times. Combine that with extraordinarily low budgets and a visual style that is beyond eccentric. One of his producers, Harry Allen Towers, likes to joke that the way Franco overused the zoom lens made him seem like a frustrated trombone player. And we've gone way beyond niche into the downright fetishistic. And when I say the vast majority of his films, I really mean it. Nobody knows for sure exactly how many movies Jess Franco directed. The Internet Movie Database lists 196 features and 9 shorts, and as he often signed his movies with pseudonyms, including the names of friends and of jazz musicians that he admired, we may never know for sure how many movies he actually made. Fortunately, his Dracula-related films form only a small pool of about 5 movies, starting with 1969's Count Dracula, and ending with the 2002 shot-on-video epic Killer Barbies vs. Dracula, so this series isn't going to drag on forever. In 1969, Christopher Lee had played Dracula three times for Hammer Films, and he was fed up. He'd first played the Count in the 1958 film just called Dracula. It was the first Dracula movie made entirely in colour, and just as importantly, it was the first film in which Dracula is depicted as an explicitly sexual force. But when the sequel Brides of Dracula came along two years later, Lee declined to appear, and when he was enticed back in 1966 for Dracula, Prince of Darkness, he refused to say the dialogue and played the role as completely non-verbal. The main reason for this is that Christopher Lee was a nerd. While it's now well known that he was a war hero who spent much of World War II working in espionage and sabotage behind enemy lines and hunting Nazi war criminals in the post-war period, it's also pretty well known that he was a massive Tolkien fan who could reel off Elvish at the drop of a hat. So it's not too surprising that he was dismayed at the liberties the Hammer movies had taken with the character of Dracula. He was a huge fan of the book and hoped to be able to play the role as written, but it was increasingly unlikely that this would be possible at Hammer. However, an opportunity came from an unlikely source. For the previous few years, Lee had been appearing in a series of adventure movies as the Chinese supervillain Fu Manchu. These were produced by Harry Allen Towers, a colourful character with a rather checkered past. Towers was an English writer and producer for radio and TV with a talent for backroom deals, who travelled the world in the post-war period setting up productions anywhere he thought he could make money, whether it be Australia, New Zealand, Europe, South America or apartheid era South Africa. His specialty was catching stars when they were over the hill or otherwise down and out, and in other words, cheap. And in this capacity he mingled with everyone from musical stars like Gracie Fields to international celebrities like Orson Welles or Noel Coward. But it was the even seedier part of his life that got him into trouble, namely his interest in prostitution. In the early 1960s, Towers was involved with several players in the Profumo Affair, the sex scandal that brought down Harold Macmillan's conservative government. 
There are entire books written on this subject. There's a movie called Scandal that you can see if you want a real primer on it. But the basic gist is that John Profumo, who was Britain's Secretary of State for War, was caught having an affair with a young model called Christine Keeler. My name's Christine. Christine Keeler was also having an affair with a Soviet naval attaché, Captain Yevgeny Ivanov. You're joking. Through Christine Keeler's pimp, Stephen Ward, Towers met Mariella Novotny, a sex worker who he took to New York with the promise of turning her into an actress. <laughs> what now? A few months later, Novotny was arrested for soliciting, and she told the FBI that Towers had trafficked her to be part of a vice ring, and that he had the aim of blackmailing important clients for information that he could then sell to the Soviet Union. But I'm a good girl. Towers was arrested and charged under the White Slave Traffic Act. Obviously, he was terrified. He jumped bail and fled the country, and the damage to his reputation destroyed his TV and radio career. Fortunately for him, the movie industry always has a place for pimps and criminals, and soon he was using his contacts to put together a variety of international productions, which he mostly wrote himself under the pseudonym Peter Welbeck. Movie censorship in the 1960s was quickly being rolled back, and Towers gleefully began including all of the sex and all the violence in his movies that had been forbidden on television. Harry Allen Towers mostly made terrible movies, but he flew his stars to exotic locations, put them up in excellent accommodation, fed them the best food money could buy, and was no doubt an excellent dinner companion. If the actual payments of salary were sometimes late, well, that was business. Christopher Lee, meanwhile, had become accustomed to working for Hammer, who made all of their movies in England, and filmed most of them on set in a converted manor house in Berkshire that they called Ray Studios. Now, given the choice of a working holiday in a warm climate, or tea and sandwiches at home, Christopher Lee was more than happy to work for Towers over and over again. They ended up making 14 movies together between 1965 and 1992. Five and a half of those movies were directed by Jess Franco. Jesus Franco, I remember telling him because the, the real Franco was still in power at that time. I remember saying to Jess the first time I met him, you know, with a couple of names like Jesus Franco, you shouldn't have any trouble in Spain. It's hard to think of two more unlikely friends than Christopher Lee and Jess Franco. They were almost like a comedy team. One was tall and straight-backed, the other was short and round. One was neat and well-groomed, the other was sloppy and sweaty. One was a prude, the other was a pervert. And yet when you watch interviews where one talks about the other, the depth of affection is immediately evident. Born Jesus Franco Manara in Spain in 1930, Jess Franco was a jazz musician who made the jump to film production in the 1950s. After working as an assistant director, a scriptwriter, and a composer, he directed his first film, the comedy We Are 18 Years Old, in 1959. It told the story of two young women who have comedic, picaresque adventures while travelling around Spain. Although the tone of the movie is very different from his later movies, the general idea of two young women having surreal adventures was a mainstay in his work for the rest of his extremely prolific career. After a few more comedies and musicals, Franco made a series of stylish black-and-white horror movies, starting with 1961's The Awful Dr. Orloff. These films introduced an element of perverse sexuality that would become one of his main trademarks. They also introduced the character of Morpho, an eagle-like blind assistant that the main villain would use to kidnap women for his diabolical experiments. Morpho would recur in various forms throughout Franco's career, as would Dr. Orloff himself. Franco made another 15 movies between 1961 and 1967 when he first met up with Harry Allen Towers. 
That's a lot for most directors, but for Franco, this was one of his slow periods. The one that brought him to Tower's attention was Necronomicon. Despite the title, Necronomicon has nothing to do with H.P. Lovecraft. Instead, it tells the story of Lorna, an S&M performer in West Berlin nightclubs who has difficulty telling the difference between fantasy and reality. It's a woozy, difficult-to-follow movie with an effective dreamlike ambiance that draws as much from European art movies as it does from sexploitation. Think of it as last year in Marion Bad, with a lot more sex and murder. When Towers saw Necronomicon, he knew he'd found a director who could be simpatico with his vision. And his vision was, inspired by Roger Corman's success with the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, to do the same thing with the works of Marquis de Sade. Pretty ambitious idea in the 1960s, but with sexual mores uh, loosening up. The idea of making a group of kind of over-the-edge S&M sex films wasn't completely out of the question. So, Towers organised an introduction to Franco via a mutual business acquaintance, Orson Welles. Jess Franco had recently worked with Wells in Spain on Chimes at Midnight, an ambitious movie which combined scenes and dialogue from several of Shakespeare's histories to tell the story of Sir John Falstaff, usually a comic foil but re-envisioned by Wells as a tragic figure. Chimes at Midnight was a passion project that Wells had been unable to get off the ground because of his unreliability and his health problems, which meant that nobody would insure a movie that he directed. Wells and Franco hit upon a scheme where Franco would nominally direct a film version of Treasure Island starring Wells as Long John Silver, while Wells would also direct Chimes at Midnight at the same time and the insurance would cover both movies. Wells being the dominant partner in this relationship, or really in any relationship, Treasure Island never actually got filmed, while Chimes at Midnight was completed and of course was hailed as a masterpiece of world cinema. And then of course it was lost for many years and very difficult to see for a long time, but you can, you can see it now. After Franco had helped Wells get his movie made, Wells was more than happy to recommend Franco for a job. For his part, Franco had learned from Wells a lot about dodgy dealings in the film world. The idea of making two movies in tandem and even making a secret bonus movie made a particular impression on him. But back to Harry Allen Towers. The way Jess Franco tells the story, the first time he heard of Towers was when he received a phone call out of the blue telling him that a limousine would be picking him up to meet some film producers. He thought it was a joke, but the limousine turned up and whisked him away to a fancy hotel where he was offered more money than he'd ever seen in his life to make the kinds of movies he already wanted to make. He immediately bailed on the movie he was about to direct, Castle of Lust, and took off to Brazil to start work. Franco only worked with Towers for about two years, but they made nine and a half movies together in this time. The half a movie was a female version of Tarzan called Eve that was already in production and the director Jeremy Summers had quit. Franco was already developing a method for making multiple films at the same time, and Towers was an extremely fast writer. For example, when Franco finished shooting the flamboyant Eurospy epic The Girl from Rio a full week ahead of schedule, Towers knocked out a quick script over the weekend so that he could get started on something new with the leftover time they had in Brazil. The resulting film, 99 Woman, reinvented the woman in prison genre and was a major moneymaker. Roger Corman, who must have been kicking himself for not coming up with this on his own, quickly sent director Jack Hill to the Philippines to make imitations of it, which in turn launched the career of Pam Greer. Towers and Franco would also repurpose footage shot for one movie into others, something that Franco would continue to do for the rest of his career. Bond girl Shirley Eaton was very annoyed by this practice when a scene she shot for the girl from Rio turned up in the blood of Fu Manchu, effectively casting her in a film that she'd never been paid for. The problem with the arrangement that Franco had with Towers, though, was that with Necronomicon he'd found the ideal form for his style of filmmaking. 
but now Towers is very much pulling the creative strings. Only one movie out of the nine they made together, Venice and Furs, was truly a Jess Franco movie in style and subject matter. And even that was compromised by demands to change the main character from a black guy to a white guy on the grounds that the love affair between a black man and a white woman would never play in America. But it's Jess Franco's working relationship with Christopher Lee that we're really looking at here, and that started with Eve and continued with The Blood of Fu Manchu. The first couple of Fu Manchu movies that Harry Allen Towers produced had reasonably high production values and were at the higher end of the many international espionage movies that came along in the wake of James Bond, Euro-spy movies they call them. But by the time Jess Franco came on board with the fourth movie in the series, The Blood of Fu Manchu, the formula had worn down and the budgets had been slashed. Franco responded by upping the sleaze factor considerably, which at least gave the film a point of interest. The fifth and final film in the series, the Castle of Fu Manchu is a complete disaster that tries to merge redubbed footage from earlier entries with stock footage and a small number of new, f- new scenes. It doesn't even have the sleaze factor of the blood of Fu Manchu to hold your attention. It ended up being on Mystery Science Theatre 3000, and I gather that they consider it to be the worst film that they ever covered. With movies like these under his belt, it's no wonder that Jess Franco still has a reputation in some circles as one of the worst filmmakers in the world. But when Towers gave him more generous budgets to make their two Marquis decided adaptations, the results were quite different. The first of these, Justine, tones down Saad's novel considerably in favour of making a bawdy period farce of the sort that was popular at the time. Think Tom Jones, for example. The original novel is subtitled The Misfortune of Virtue, and is about a character whose life is systematically destroyed by her own desire to be virtuous, while her sister Juliet, who merited her own much longer and more interesting novel, is rewarded for her devotion to vice. Star Romina Power, the daughter of Tyrone Power, was foisted on the production by Towers. She just doesn't have the acting chops to play the lead character. She's very young, and uh, Franco said he would have preferred Rosemary Dexter, who he said completely understood the sadomasochistic ideas inherent in the story. It also suffers from too many famous guest stars, from a silent Klaus Kinski as the Marquis de Sade himself, to Mercedes Cambridge to an obviously drunk Jack Palance as a degenerate monk. But it is a gorgeously photographed movie, if maybe half an hour too long, and the actor who plays Juliet is a revelation. Maria Rome was Harry Allen Tower's girlfriend at the time and later his wife. Rome had a tame role in The Blood of Fu Manchu as the young heroine and Franco had written her off as the producer shoehorning his girlfriend into the movie. But as he got to know her, he realised there was a lot more to her and started casting her in more challenging roles. Franco was always a strong director of women, and Rome's performance here is evil fun, spoiled only by an ending that completely upends Saad's deliciously ironic climax. But Justine was just a warm-up for Towers and Franco's next Saad adaptation based on philosophy in the bedroom. This time the movie is set in the present day, Maria Rome is pushed much closer to the centre of the narrative, and there's more emphasis on Saad's decadent ideas. The movie opens with a gruesome tableau presided over by none other than Christopher Lee, as a woman is sacrificed before a cloud of clergy and sinister sweaty perverts, including Franco himself, who is always well cast in that sort of role. In the ten years since he first played Dracula, Lee had become uncomfortable with the sex symbol image that he'd inadvertently gained. Although he played a few roles with a sexual element to them, most notably in Mario Bava's S&M ghost story, The Whip and the Body, where he was the erotic obsession of the gorgeous Israeli actor Dahlia Lavi, Lee had gone so far as to have a clause put into his contracts, stipulating that he would not kiss anybody on the mouth. 
Given his prudish nature, it's a huge surprise to see him in this sort of movie at all, much less sharing the screen with these sorts of images. In later years, he claimed to be unaware of the content of the film. But just listen to this. Lewd women. Let the voluptuous heroine of this story be your model. After her example, be heedless of all that contradicts pleasure's divine laws, by which all her life she was enchained. As for all you young maidens, thus achieve the ultimate in pleasure. Observe this ceremony of sadism, which illustrates that truth. Let us turn again to the words of Desaad himself. Voluptuaries of all ages, of either sex, it is to you only I offer this work. Nourish yourselves, therefore, upon its principles. They favor your passions, and these passions are naught but the means nature employs to bring man to the end she prescribes for him. Hearken only to these delicious promptings. For no voice save that of the passions can bring you to complete happiness. And so, a smattering of roses along the thorny paths of life. And bear in mind that during this scene, Christopher Lee is standing directly in front of an altar where a woman is lying naked. Lee claimed that whenever he turned to face the altar, they whipped a sheet over her, and that he was shocked to later discover that he'd been tricked into appearing in a sex movie. I think he protests too much, and I prefer to think that he knew what he was getting into and did it anyway, as, as a favour to his friend Jess. The Bloody Judge, the last film that Towers, Franco and Lee made before turning their attention to Dracula, was one of the wave of films that followed in the wake of the classic Vincent Price vehicle, Matthew Hopkins' Witchwinder General. Where other films in the cycle, such as Michael Armstrong's Mark of the Devil, place the emphasis squarely on the torture of women accused of witchcraft, The Bloody Judge has a good crack at being a historical epic, with a cast of distinguished actors flopping about in decent period costumes, and a pretty good large-scale battle scene as the centrepiece. If Towers had been able to raise as much money for Dracula as he clearly did for The Bloody Judge, we might well have got the classy and faithful adaptation of the book that we were promised. Or possibly not, because the money came with a caveat. According to Franco, Towers had teamed up with American, German, Spanish, French and Italian producers, and each of them had their own requirements to go along with their investment. America wanted a PG movie. Germany wanted more torture. Spain wanted no nudity. France wanted as much nudity as possible. And Italy probably wanted all of everything at once. To accommodate all of these various markets, Franco was forced to shoot multiple variations of a lot of scenes to cater to the specific whims of the various producers. For a director who liked to shoot in as loose and experimental a fashion as possible, this was the exact opposite of what he wanted to be doing. The end result was a movie that had a variety of different versions and running times throughout the world. From 75 minutes in Germany, where it was retitled The Witch Slayer of Blackmore, and cut out most of the story to focus on the torture scenes, to 80 minutes in America, where it was rated PG and rated Night of the Blood Monster, to a full two hours in its full form as the bloody judge, with a bit of everything in it. Different versions also had different endings. In some versions, Christopher Lee dies of a heart attack. In others, he's dragged out and gruesomely executed. 
and in one version he doesn't die at all. Franco was so tired of Harry Allen Towers' machinations after the bloody judge that he snuck off and made a small movie of his own before returning to tackle Dracula. Nightmares Come at Night was the first film that Franco produced himself. It was a return to the erotic, dreamlike surrealism of Succubus, and perhaps more importantly, it was made without a completed script. Where Harry Allen Towers had imposed his own scripts on Franco, and even with Venus and Furs, Franco had to complete a script to satisfy the distributors, here he had total freedom to improvise a movie like it was a jazz solo. Franco surrounded himself with actors he loved from his earlier movies, like Diana Loris from The Awful Dr. Orloff and Paul Muller from Philosophy in the Bedroom. And he kept the brilliant Italian composer Bruno Nicolai, who Harry Allen Towers had introduced to him, and who would go on to compose some of the best soundtracks to Franco's 1970s movies. If I might interject a note of possible blasphemy, I actually think a lot of Ennio Morricone's wilder and more interesting scores are largely a result of being orchestrated and conducted by Bruno Nicolai. But his most important collaborator was someone who only had a small supporting role in Nightmares Come at Night, in scenes which actually play like they were shot for a different movie and edited in after the fact, which might be true. Soledad Miranda had actually appeared in one earlier Jess Franco movie almost 10 years before, the musical comedy Queen of the Tabarine Club, but she'd been little more than an extra. By the time they reunited, she had transformed from a teenage girl into a dark, transfixing presence. Her appearance in Nightmares Come at Night is effectively a screen test, as the movie only played once theatrically, and was then lost for about 35 years until it unexpectedly turned up on DVD. Reinvigorated by having worked on a movie on his own terms for the first time in two whole years, which might not seem long for most filmmakers, but remember that Towers and Franco had made eight movies together in this time, Jess Franco returned to work with Harry Allen Towers one final time. The aim was to make the first faithful film adaptation of Dracula by Bram Stoker, with a very proud Christopher Lee in the lead role. And as we've run out of time this episode, we'll talk about the making of that film, how it was received, and how it impacted the careers of everyone concerned in our next episode. I'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, come and check us out on Facebook. We've got a page, Dracula Sucks Podcast. Come and give me some feedback on these episodes and let me know what you think. I'd be really grateful if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Remember that if you give us a five-star review, that really helps us. Even if you think we're only a three-star podcast, a five-star review will help push us up in the rankings. And just, I'd like to hear from people. I'd like to hear feedback. Let me know what works or what doesn't work on these episodes. And come back in two weeks for part two of Jess Franco's Dracula. Good night.